Brethren, we have been in Ephesians chapter 2. We've been considering the name of our church, Sovereign Grace Bible Church. And we focused last time, particularly on verses 8 through 10, which brings us to a very, very important declaration regarding our salvation and the effects of that salvation. The Apostle Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then he says this in verse 10, and this was the particular focus of our study last time. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. It would be tragic if we ended on verse 9 and said, well, our salvation is not based upon works, which is an important truth, but then conclude that somehow works are irrelevant to the life of a Christian. Some people do this. And Paul corrects that thinking immediately in verse 10. We're not saved by works, but those who are saved will bear the fruit of good works. And that's not to our praise and glory. It is to the praise and glory of the one who redeemed us. Again, he says, we are his workmanship, his poema. And he is writing, uh, if to borrow the illustrative nature of the word poem, from which we get the word from poema, we, God is writing a poem. He is crafting and writing a poem in the lives of his children, his people, bringing about the fruit of good works in their lives in order to display his glory. His argument is not that we're going to be perfect people. Clearly we're not. If we claim that we have no sin, we're lying. We're lying, we're calling God a liar, we're calling, and we're acknowledging that we ourselves are lying if we say such a thing. No, this is not an argument of perfectionism, but it is an argument that says that God brings about change when he redeems an individual. And remember, this is the entirety of the argument that Paul has been advancing in Ephesians chapter 2. He talked about our former walk in the early portion of the chapter, saying that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and then he says, in which you formerly walked. Now we have a new walk. By the power of God's divine grace, we have this new walk, and the new walk is characterized by good works. And so God doesn't save us to no end or purpose. His chief end is his own glory, as we even talked about from the very beginning of our consideration of the scriptures together. Remember when we were preaching on talking about the jealousy of God. God is jealous for his glory. And he's jealous for his glory as manifested and expressed through his redeemed people. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saves his people so as to showcase the kindness of his love, his mercy, and his grace as manifested in his people. So Paul talks about good works in chapter 2 and verse 10. 
which then launches us into the remainder of the epistle where he continues to talk about what grace looks like in the life of a child of God. In the third chapter, he talks about basically, if I can summarize it this way, he talks about how it is that love is manifested in the life of a child of God. He basically gives us a a summary of the foremost commandment, talking about the fact that we are now rooted and grounded in God's love, and we're to walk in that manner of love with which God has loved us. He then, in chapter 4, tells us that we are no longer to live as the Gentiles in our speech and our treatment of other brethren, but we're to have changed lives in the manner of our, the course of our lives, in the manner of our speech. Then he, in chapter 5, talks about the conduct that we are to have amidst a fallen world. And he talks about marriage, what marriage is to look like, and what family is to look like, and children. In chapter 6, he starts talking about how we are to minister to children in our homes. And then as he continues on in chapter 6, he tells us that we're to be soldiers. We're to be soldiers and fight in the field of this world, the the battle of this world, and understand that we're called not to be a perpetual hospital, but we're called to be trained in the camp of the armies of God and go out into the real battle of life every day. These are the good works of which he speaks. Simply put, brethren, we've not been saved to sit. We've been saved to serve. It's just that simple. But not all accept this simple precept of Scripture. You know, I've served in the ministry for now over 30 years. It's been an unspeakable privilege. But I have to say, I've been in a number number of battles over the years, and I have faced a number of contests over this very subject of, are we saved to sit or are we saved to serve? There are some people who would talk at length about the fact that we are saved by grace, indeed, but they're not really interested in talking about the grace that is then effectual, not only for our salvation, but is also effectual in the matter of bearing fruit in the lives of the children of God. I first started in the ministry as a, as, as a um, interim pastor here in California, actually, and then moved to Minnesota for my first full-time pastorate ministry, In that ministry, I was immediately opposed by several individuals who promoted what we might call a hyper-grace theology, which teaches that obedience in the life of a a Christian is somehow optional. Some might call this uh, either hyper-grace theology or antinomian theology. In Minnesota, when I was being confronted by this, I found out that the former pastor was actually kind of soaking the fires of this opposition to my ministry there. He was sending people in the congregation books and articles, basically talking about how I was um, being dishonest in the manner of what I was teaching from the pulpit. Some of the deacons in the church rallied some other people together and began to subvert my preaching ministry 
In fact, they, what they would do is while I was preaching, uh, they would take their little group and they would go downstairs and talk about what a bad preacher I was. After several months of this, I learned, I heard the sad news that my father had passed away. I flew back to Southern California and performed my first funeral as a young pastor for my own father. I got to tell you, um, performing a funeral for a relative who never professed faith in Christ is a difficult thing to do. In addition to that, I had to sort through all of his paperwork and his personal belongings without the aid of a will. And if you've ever done that, you know that that is a, that's like unscrambling a very, very large omelet. It's not an easy thing to do. It was exhausting, honestly. Exhausted physically and emotionally, I returned home after all of this to my new church home in Minnesota, only to be presented with a letter signed by these deacons and all that they had gathered, all the people that they had gathered with them, demanding that I resign as their pastor. Honestly, it wasn't the homecoming I was expecting, but it's what I got. And why am I sharing this with you? I'm sharing this with you because, honestly, all I could do at that moment when I got home was just hug my wife and, at that time, two children, Hannah and Maria, and I couldn't help but to think to myself, where in the world have I brought my family to? I share this with you because when I say that I've had to face contests over this subject of how efficacious and powerful is God's grace, not only in the work of salvation, but also in the sanctification and perseverance of a child of God, trust me when I say I've been through battles. And by the way, this is just the first one I had. I already mentioned to you my contest with Grace Bible Church in North Carolina. What I'm saying here is, is that this is a ubiquitous problem. And beyond these personal experiences, I've talked to many pastors who have faced contests just like this. Where they'll face people who will say, yes, grace unto salvation, but grace unto perseverance, not so much. I actually talked to a man at one point in time, it must have been like 15 years ago, the church actually sued him over this issue. I thought about it, what? They're suing him. I don't know how that fell out, but or how that came about, or, or how that ended, but honestly, I wasn't terribly surprised when I heard that. That was a new one for me, but I thought to myself, yeah, I get it. This is what's out there. You visit a lot of churches out in America, and this is a brewing contest in a lot of churches. And if you want to have a sense of what we're talking about, let me read to you the writings of one individual, one individual who is being promoted in the church in Minnesota in view of this hyper-grace antinomian theology. Uh, Zane Hodges, who wrote quite a bit on this very subject, Zane Hodges, at one point in time, said something in an open address, in an address at the Church of the Open Door, pastored by Michael Kokoris, 
Hodges says this, and this basically encapsulates the viewpoint of not just Zane Hodges, but many individuals who hold to this view whereby they oppose the doctrine of perseverance. Hodges said this, I have a friend who labored with me side by side in the ministry of God's word, and this friend has fallen away from the Christian faith. He graduated from Bob Jones University and from Dallas Theological Seminary, and about the time when he and his wife left Dallas, his wife contracted a very serious illness, which over the years got progressively worse until she was reduced to being a complete invalid. And after the death of his wife, I visited my friend who now lives in the Midwest and who teaches ancient history in a secular university. And as we sat in the living room together, face to face, he told me very frankly, but graciously, that he no longer claimed to be a Christian at all, that he no longer believed the things that he once preached and taught. I heard through others that in the classroom on the university campus, he often mocked and ridiculed the Christian faith. Well, you say, I guess he's headed for hell, right? I guess he's headed for eternal damnation. He's renounced his Christian faith. Wait a minute, says Hodges. I didn't say that. Let me remind you that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. And he also said, he that cometh to me I shall in no wise cast out. God's will is that he lose no one. He has never lost anyone, and he never will. I grieve because my friend and brother has lost his faith, but Christ has not lost him. Well, first of all, brethren, I am so thankful that every time that I do something foolish, sinful, and stupid, that the Lord preserves and keeps me and does so infallibly. But when we're talking about an individual who is denying Christ, renouncing Christ, renouncing the gospel, something is very much different about this. The Apostle John addressing this issue says, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared from this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were never really of us. For if they had been of us, they would, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. What can be said about the apostate? According to the Apostle John, they had the appearance of being with us, but the reality is, like Judas, they never really were of us. And their departure is now re revealing the fact that even though they profess to have faith in Christ, that was not real. Brethren, this distinction is important. We have to keep in mind and remember that just as there was the son of perdition amidst the twelve, the reality is, is that there were only really eleven believing disciples. And there was one who departed and demonstrated his apostasy when he 
did forsake Christ. This is one of the reasons why I recently complained about the editing of hymns and how it is that we need to be reminded of some of these difficult truths. The church is one foundation which has that important verse that we need to remember, which says, though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up how long, and soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. In this life we face such contests. In this life we have to face battles. And sometimes they take place by those who engage in apostasy, abandoning their faith in Christ, turning their back on the Savior, without relentance. And instead of running around and saying, well, that person's still a Christian, even though they're telling us they're not, we need to acknowledge the fact that, no, they never really were of us. That's a hard thing to have to say, especially to those that we called friends, and especially when we're talking about relatives, family, loved ones. It's a hard truth, but it is the truth. And we must never trade in the truth for our sense of tenderness and affection for others. In fact, honestly, Zane Hodges would be a better friend to this man who abandoned Christ and call him to repentance. Instead Instead of whitewashing the whole situation and saying, well, you're still a Christian. What he really should have done is say, no, you're a lost man. And I fear for your soul. Turn to Christ. In every generation, there will be those who claim faith in Christ, but are in one way or another deceived, thereby only having the appearance of being members of the body of Christ. As the Apostle Paul taught in 1 Timothy 6.24, the sins of some men are evident, but for others their sins follow after them, being made evident in time. Scripture supplies multiple examples of this. We have the example of Korah, Hymenaeus, Alexander, Diotrephes, and Demas, who co-labored with the Apostle Paul, but then abandoned the Apostle, ultimately because he loved this present world. It's sad, but it happens, and we have to think about it rightly, biblically, scripturally, or else we'll get hoodwinked and confused about the whole matter. And as I just mentioned, the greatest example that we have is the example of Judas. Honestly, I've sat and thought about this many times. I thought to myself, you know, the Lord ordained that Judas would be in the mix. That wasn't some sort of a mishap. God doesn't have mishaps. He ordained that an apostate would be embedded in the twelve so that we would look back in hindsight and understand there were only 11, ultimately, believing disciples. And by the way, if you ever want to have an experience of hermeneutical gymnastics, read about how Zane Hodges and um, Jody Dillo tried to make Judas out to be a, a believer, despite his apostasy. I recommend you take a couple of aspirin before you read those materials. <laughs> It's, it's really a, a remarkable thing. Uh, Jody Dillow's book is about that thick. 
filled with sophistry in order to make these arguments. It's sad. And brethren, let me, let me add one more thing before we enter into the, the word this morning. Even in our time of outreach at the farmer's market, <laughs> there was a part of me that was just kind of anticipating a little bit of difference in experience from outreach that we've done in North Carolina. Culturally, it, it is different, I admit. But you know what? The thing we have to keep in mind is, is that sin is everywhere. The sins of men are common. The problem of mankind is the same across the board. I don't care what culture you're visiting. The good news is, is that the gospel is the same in every generation, and it is the one and only solution that we need. So what do I experience? What did I experience on Thursday? I'm talking to people. There are some people who were secular and admitted that, and we knew it where each other stood pretty clearly and obviously. There are others who claim to have some faith in Christ or some religious devotion or whatever, and then you talk to them and then you get the, as we said before, the resume, and they're looking to their works for their salvation. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And I only say that again to say the same gospel is all that we need. Amen. That's all we need. We don't have to have some sort of a unique program for humanity based upon where we are. I mean, obviously, we have to be mindful and sensitive to the cultures that we minister to, but at the end of the day, it's the same gospel. Brethren, with all this said, and in light of what we've been studying about the fact that, no, we're not saved by works, um, if we could say that we're saved by works, then we would have a reason to boast, as Paul says. We don't have a reason to boast, not in ourselves. The only one that we're boasting in is the God who redeemed us powerfully, mightily, and by his grace alone. Dot, 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 verse 10, being then his workmanship, who are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. What are we to do? We're to walk in those good works. It's the dot, dot, dot. It's the continuation of thought that I want us to think about a little bit more. If, if you're a redeemed person, you've been called to walk in the good works that God has ordained beforehand. It's not an option. Again, we're not talking about perfectionism, but we're talking about a child of God growing in this matter of bearing fruit, stumbling and then sinning and then getting back up again by the grace of God and then growing and bearing more fruit and then stumbling and falling again and then grow and then getting up again by the grace of God, by the power of God and bearing more fruit. That's life as a Christian. I think one of the most helpful things that I was told as a baby Christian was, number one, Christianity and your life in this world, it's not going to be a bowl of cherries, one of the reasons why is because the world that you now live in is opposed to you, but also because though you're redeemed, you still have this battle of sin within you. That was one of the most helpful points of counsel I received as a baby Christian. I believe that we need to face that reality and understand that it is a battle. But here's the good news. If you're a child of God... God will be faithful. He is faithful to bring about the work of perseverance in your lives and bear fruit through you for his glory. That's Ephesians 2.7. 
In all of this, I want to bring you then to a text to help us to think about all of this. And I have really, I have a very warped sense of my time this morning. I don't know why, but uh, I'm going to try to move faster here. James 2, verse 14, if you would turn to that text. And I'm going to promise to you this is going to be a, a very, very cursory treatment of this text because when I preached through James years ago, we spent, we spent a long time going through James. We could take a long time going through this section. But I think it's enough for us to sample what James is teaching us because I believe that this is an a- absolutely crucial concept that we would understand that God has redeemed us to the end that we would bear fruit for his name's sake. James approaches this issue almost as a scientist, as an observational scientist, and he now wants us to think about the individual who is running around with their mouths saying that they have faith, but they have no works. He says this in verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Now, this text has been in some cases, abused horribly throughout the centuries. Some have complained about it, and Luther even referred to it as a strawy epistle, and uh, I won't get into that this morning, but um, it's remarkable when you think about it. James isn't saying anything different from what we've been studying. In fact, really, the harmonization of the Word of God is exactly what we'd expect it to be. This is a book that comes from one author, ultimately, and I can guarantee you that that which is given instrumentally through James is not in contradiction to that which is given instrumentally through Paul. They're both saying the same thing, but they're doing so looking at the gem of salvation and perseverance and giving us different viewpoints of the same gem. If you were to study and examine a a gem, you would be able to pick that up, turn that thing around, and look at the different facets of the gem. It's one gem, but you see different facets of it. And so really, this idea of emphasizing the fact that we're not saved by works is important, but also the importance of saying that if you're saved, you do work is also important. And separating and distinguishing these ideas is key. If you blend them together, you get confused. James is helping us to understand this other point of the argument. If you are a saved person, works will be evident. But he really gets more to the issue of whether or not this individual who is saying that they're a believer really is a believer. To examine this, first of all, we need to think about the context of what he is saying. The context of what he is saying The context of what James is saying is rooted in his argument concerning the fact that love and mercy should be in the life of a child of God. If you take chapter 2 and verse 14 all all the way to the end of the chapter, you might get a, a wrong impression about what James is saying. Everything has to be taken in view of context. 
And so what is the context of James 2.14? Well, if you go back to the beginning of James 2, James says, talking about the importance and priority of love over partiality, he says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? Notice the word judges with evil motives. Then in verse 8, and I'm summarizing the text, he talks about the supremacy and priority of the royal law, the law of love. And why is he talking about the royal law, the law of love? Well, he's basically saying if you're treating people with partiality, you're not acting in love. This is really in some total what he's talking about. Love does not treat people with partiality. Love says, you're a human being, you're a child of God. I love you. I care about you. Your value is not based upon whether or not you have money or whether you don't have money or any of the, of the other classifications and distinctions that humanity likes to come up with. All of that is irrelevant. God is not a respecter of persons. And the love that he has poured out in our hearts will manifest itself not in partiality, but in impartiality. Then he talks about the supremacy of mercy over judgmentalism. He just talked about the judgmentalism of, of partiality. He then says in verse 12, this, he says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. In other words, we're under the, the, the God of all law and authority. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, a heart that has been transformed by the power of God, that has been filled with the love of God, will be a heart that is filled with such love and then mercy towards others. What is he doing? He's helping us to think about what a Christian looks like, right? This is a part of his argument. If you lose this and then move into the second portion of chapter 2, you might miss everything. Context is king, as they used to say in seminary. It is. And this is why he launches into, in verse 14, a distinction between true faith versus false faith. True faith versus false faith. True faith will bear forth fruit. True faith will bear forth the reality of obedience to Christ. The text that I referred to in, in part, partly in reference to this is John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who, what? Loves me. Love for Christ will bear this result. It will bear the result of our following him and obeying him. Again, not perfectly. Nobody's perfect. But it will bear forth the fruit of obedience. This relationship between love, mercy, and true faith, it's everywhere in the Bible. What is the first fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5? 
It's love. What do we see resident in the heart of a child of God who truly believes in Christ? The first fruit of the Spirit is love. Romans chapter 5, our, our scripture reading for this morning, reminds us of this crucial concept of the relationship between genuine faith and love. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into his grace, into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Love that is poured out in the heart of a child of God will bear forth this thing called perseverance. This is God's effectual grace at work, not just in the moment of salvation, but on the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. Because God is faithful. God is faithful to bring to fruition the very work that he began in you. And in me. And this is the argument of James. He's saying, How dare you show partiality? If you're redeemed, then you've been redeemed by the loving God who has poured out his love in you. The royal law should be your highest priority. And if the royal law of love is your highest priority, you're not going to treat others with partiality and you're not going to engage in this activity of judging others, being their judge as if you were God himself. And this is why he enters into this statement, kind of like a scientist, saying, let's look at this individual who says that he has faith, but he has no fruit, no works, is that saving faith? That's his question. Is that genuine? Can we really say of this individual that, yeah, they, they're a genuine believer and they're really conducting themselves as such? The answer is no. D. Edmund Hebert makes a remarkable comment regarding this, summarizing it quite well, I think. He says this teaching from James was apparently necessitated by the tendency of some of the readers to go from one extreme to another. Before their conversion to Christianity, these Jewish Christian believers had shared their prevailing Jewish emphasis upon the efficacy of works. After they saw and accepted the evangelical message that salvation is by grace through faith without meritorious works, they went to the opposite extreme. They were now prone to assume that works were not needed at all. And James was seeking to combat a moral indolence that was seeking to fasten itself upon their assurance of the doctrinal correctness of their faith. You know what's interesting about us humans? We like to do the pendulum thing. Um, we like to go to the extreme 
uh, it's easy. In fact, I've seen this even with people who discover the doctrines of God's sovereignty. Sometimes, some of the, sometimes people go to the extreme of hyper-Calvinism. Or some people who react to the doctrines of grace, they want to go to the other extreme, and so they swing the pendulum to the other side, promoting Pelagianism and Arminianism and all these other things. The biblical middle right here is what we need, not human pendulum swings. And James is addressing the pendulum swing that says, oh, I'm saved by grace, therefore works are totally irrelevant now. I don't have to obey, I don't have to do anything in obedience to God. James is saying, if that's your attitude, where's the love of God in your hearts? Where's the royal law? In the case of the individual who says that they have faith, but they have no works, James concludes that this individual's so-called faith is utterly dead. There's nothing there. He's like a Judas. Very simply put, all that we're talking about is the simple truth that Christ presents when he says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. This is what the new life begets. Ears that hear and feet that follow. That's it. This isn't really that complicated. But men who love their pendulum swings like to complicate the whole thing. We've got to guard against this. This then brings us to another consideration. Not only have we considered the context of love and mercy in the life of a child of God, which is the context of his argument, not just in James 2, by the way. If you go back to James 1, he already started that argument. But the second thing we need to do in considering what James is teaching is this. We need to think about the distinction between true and false faith. True and false faith. Again, James, kind of like a scientist, wants us to evaluate empirically what we're looking at. He says, what use is it, verse 14 of chapter 2 of James, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says, and this is the key word, lege, someone says he has faith but has no works. Can that faith save him is his question. You need to focus on and consider what he's focusing on. He's talking about the verbal profession of the individual. Because that's the entire context of all that remains in the remainder of the chapter. He's making a distinction between the individual who says that they have faith versus the individual who is demonstrating their faith by virtue of their works. So one is rooted in the idea of just words. The other one is rooted in action. By the way, let me say this. <laughs> um, as we had the opportunity to share Christ with other people, I, 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 I had that moment where I was, there was one person that I, I just witnessed to. I was thankful I was able to just talk to this individual about Christ and I, I gave her some tracks, and, and she left, and I thought to myself, I don't know what's going to happen. We never know. Unless the person comes to Christ in that moment, we just have to entrust that person to Christ and pray for them, right? Because it's ultimately his work, right, if that person's going to turn at all. 
But that brought me back to my own experience in being witness to as, a, as an unbeliever back in Okinawa when I was a young man. And I distinctly remember the people who faithfully witnessed to me and their faithfulness to Christ. Their actions spoke loudly to me. I was listening to their words, yes, but I was also watching them like a hawk because I had already up to that point met individuals who talked about Jesus, but then I began to wonder who are these people based upon their conduct. But these people love me. And I hope I can find David Vang someday because I treated him horribly. I turned him away. He kept coming back and wanting to talk to me about Christ, and I just shoot him away, even mocking Christ as I did. Finally, I let him drag me to Bible study, and the Lord took a hold of my heart from there, and then he became a friend. His faithfulness and unwillingness to, to flee the scene, his willingness to come back and love me with the love of Christ was powerful. Talking about believing in Jesus is crucial. We need to talk about the Savior, but we need to be mindful of the lives that we have and the fruit that we possess and bear, and therefore the testimony that we have in view of our conduct. These things need to be considered together. James says, you believe that God is one, talking about the idea of faith, Verse 19, he says, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. He is rebuking the individual saying, oh, I believe and therefore it's all over. Just because I say I believe, it's, it's a settled matter. And James refutes that notion and says, I got news for you. The demons believe too. By the way, I've, have you thought about this? I'm sure you have. The demons probably have better theology than most people, maybe even some of the best theologians on planet Earth. They were eyewitnesses of creation, eyewitnesses of the glory and the power of God, even as he cast them out of heaven. When it says that they know and believe that he is one, remember that gets to the foremost commandment. Hear, O Israel, the, the, the Shema, the command to hear. Israel, hear this. The very God that you are to love is described in verse 4. The Lord our God is Echad in the Hebrew. He is one. Why is that an important declaration? Well, first of all, we need to know the love, the, the God that we're professing to love. We need to know something about who this God is. And the first thing that we're told in that commandment of love is that God is echad, one. That's not just talking about numerical singularity. It's talking about his utter unity, his perfection of unity, his shalom. He's the God of peace in part because he is the God who, rep, who is, in fact, essential peace and unity, all aspects of his attributes come together in perfection. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in their individual persons come together as the Godhead in perfect unity. You're never going to have perfect unity between two human beings. I am very unified with my wife, but we're not perfectly unified in, by virtue of the fact that we're human beings. I'll never get her to like hot sauce. I gave up years ago. Everything has to be mild. It's okay. I love her still. Okay. There's no contradiction in God. None. Zero. The, the demons know this better than we do. They believe. What else are they going to do? They've witnessed this glory of the perfectly unified Godhead. And then he says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? How do the demons work? What is their labor? It is entirely committed against the glory of God. It is entirely committed to the blasphemy of his name. But they're believers. James says, don't be confused. Just having intellectual knowledge about God doesn't save you. If he's not your trust, then all is lost. This is why the parable of the sower is so important. Remember the sower, he went out and sowed the seed, the seed of the word of God, and then there was the case of the word going out to the one who did not understand it, and the evil one came and snatched away the word that was sown because it was not sown in the heart, got to the head, didn't get to the heart. Then there was a seed that was sown in such a way that the individual who receives it, receives it with joy. There's an appearance of joy in reception, but because there's no real root, it's only temporary, Jesus says, and when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately that individual falls away. And then there's the case of the seed of the word that came upon the one who heard the word, but because of the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth, they choked out the word, and there was no fruit. Of all the soils mentioned in the parable of the sower and the seed, only one bears fruit. And that is the soil that receives the word and bears fruit. Everything else is a loss. And there may even be the appearance of excitement and joy and momentary responses. But it's not real. You remember what happened when Jesus announced that one of his disciples would betray him. Remember that the disciples didn't all stand up at the same time and say, I know who this is, it's Judas. They had no idea. None. Is it I, Lord? Surely not I, Lord. They had no idea. Judas was able to give the appearance of being a disciple, of being a believer. 
but it was all a farce. Brethren, again, as we evangelize people, as we talk to them about Christ, know this. We are going to meet people who will say, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. All is well. I'm a believer. Thank you for talking to me about that, but I'm a believer already. Ask more questions. You don't necessarily have to doubt what they're saying, but just just learn enough about them to know what they're talking about when they say that they're a believer. A believer in what? Talk further. Ask questions. Many times you will find in your conversation that the individual that you're speaking to is believing in the name of Jesus, but without the real Jesus. In other words, the Jesus that they're, they're believing in is a Jesus that has been invented by some clever author or some preacher who's on the Internet who's talking about Jesus, but it's a false Jesus. By the way, again, farmer's market, we had Jehovah's Witnesses right across the way from us. They're talking about Jesus, too. It's not the real Jesus, so, right? When we go back on the 10th, August 10th, I've got material I'm gonna, I want to give to them. Cause, uh, but I'm, I'm not really there for them primarily. I'm there for those who come, but I don't want to ignore them because they need Christ too. May I quote Pastor Cecil on this? That's a rhetorical question. He said this in May of 2001, and he's right. He says, in our own time, the emphasis on spirituality is pagan at heart. Although more than 90% of Americans claim to believe in God, the God they believe in is one whom they have customized to their own liking. Each time the Pledge of Allegiance is recited in the public square and people declare that we are one nation under God, the question needs to be asked, which God are we under? Our currency bears the words, in God we trust, but who is this God in whom we are supposed to trust? The answers will show that the God so many profess is not the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. Even the God confessed and worshipped in many churches is not always the living and true God of the Bible, end quote. And he's right. That's a hard thing to say. It's a hard thing to acknowledge, but brethren, he's right. Our generation isn't that new from or different from any other generation. We've got to get that out of our brain. Subjectivism has been the universal religion of fallen man since the beginning of time. And what do I mean by subjectivism? Have you ever heard someone talk about my truth? You haven't heard my truth. Well, let me tell you about my truth. And they'll proceed to give you their theology of their truth. And they have their own lexical definitions of their own truth. And what they're doing is they're telling you that they are the the authority over everything in their little universe. That is what is in the heart of every human being apart from Christ. I am my own Lord. And you don't get to tell me, you don't get to tell me that I'm some sort of a sinner in need of a savior. How dare you? So John Calvin is right about the message of James. 
He says the design of James was to expose the foolish boasting of those who imagined that they had faith when by their life they showed that they were unbelievers. The good news is we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's his ordained will, our perseverance. We've been justified by faith. We now have peace with God. And now as the children of God, having had the love of God poured out within our hearts, we what? We persevere under the authority of Christ and the royal law, the law of love. A love that that draws us joyfully and willingly to serve Christ, the foremost commandment, to serve him and to serve our neighbor. It really is that simple. And And men who love their pendulum and the pendulum swings of argumentation will gladly take that biblical middle and and take a wrecking ball to the whole thing. We've got to guard against all of that. So Spurgeon is right. On the subject of perseverance, he says, he who stands firm to the end will be saved, quoting from Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22. Perseverance is not the experience of the few. It is not just for the faithful preachers of the word or only for the elders or deacons of the church. Rather, it is the common experience of every true believer in the church. It must be so, for only by persevering in the faith can they prove or demonstrate that they are believers. That's James' argument. Without perseverance, they cannot be saved, and if they are truly saved, then they will persevere through divine grace, and it's all of divine grace. It's all of divine grace. And that's why he gets the glory for it all. Brethren, I say to you that these truths are so crucial. Um, We need them. We need to grow in them, by them, and remember that it is our privilege to give glory to the God who has redeemed us. And to know that that's our, our greatest pleasure and joy. We're about to observe and partake in the Lord's table. Which means that we're about to confess by this outward sign that our salvation does not come from us. It comes wholly and completely by means of the finished work of the Lamb of God, the unblemished Lamb of God. May we honor the Lord in this table. When the Apostle Paul addresses this very important matter, he calls us to a very significant reminder where he says this, speaking of the importance of honoring the Lord in the table, he says, 
whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. That's a solemn warning, but it's a needful one. And I read that scripture to you to encourage you, to exhort you, to pray and consider carefully what we're about to do. This is a confession of our need for Christ and that he alone is our hope. And it is such a privilege to do so. I'm going to ask the ushers who will be serving to come forward, please, if you would. And in view of this exhortation of self-examination, we're going to take some time to pray silently. Just where you're sitting, we're just going to pray silently. Pray Pray to the Lord. If there are any issues, any matters, any sins that need to be confessed, do so now. Because again, we want to honor Christ in this time. After our time of silent prayer, I'll pray and then we'll partake of the elements. But let's begin with silent prayer first. Let's pray together.